So today we are reading from Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 9. I'll give you a moment to find it in your Bibles or on your devices. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, This is not your own thing or your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let's just pray for Keith as he comes up to talk to us about that. Great. Well, it's great to see everybody again this week and uh, happy to be back. And just to let everyone know, next week James will be back with us and James is going to start a summer series in the Minor Prophets. So if you've never heard what a minor prophet is, it's just a a small prophet. No, I'm just kidding. No, minor prophets and major prophets, the only difference is the size of the book. If you were just wondering that trivial question in your mind, the only difference is that Isaiah is quite a large book and maybe Amos is a much smaller book. So that's kind of the difference. So last week we began a quick, short, two-week little series here, uh, and the name of the series is Dead or Alive. The purpose of this is to contrast what your life has been like and is like now, or what it could be like and what it is now, or what potentially could be if you were to live your life to the fullest. You know, this series is not just for somebody that doesn't know Jesus. This series is really for all of us. This truth is not for somebody who's never met Jesus before, although a lot of the content of what we're saying is about that. This is actually a letter written by a guy named Paul that we talked about last week to a group of believers just like us. So this is not something, even though we're looking at this stuff and we're saying, oh yeah, yeah, I know that, I know that. Let's get to the good stuff about how I'm supposed to have a good marriage, how I'm supposed to have a good friendship, how I'm supposed to teach my kids. That's all good, but this is truth that understood properly can literally revolutionize our life as we know it. And this is truth that if we digest it, if we ingest it, what's the word? If we take it in, uh, then properly what will happen is our life will be far different from the way it was before. So last week, just a quick review, last week we began talking about a guy named Paul. And everybody probably has heard of the Apostle Paul, but many people don't know that Paul was involved in what uh, we know very popular today and what I would maybe say is terrorism, the T word. So Paul actually hung out and persecuted Christians, ordered their deaths, stood by why Christians were murdered, and encouraged it. That's who Paul was. So that's the subject, that's the author of what we're reading today. Pretty crazy to think about, but that's who Paul is. Paul is not this guy that constantly was in a church doing the right thing, giving alms to the poor, and our model Christian. No, Paul was a pretty rough dude. Paul was most likely rougher than just about anybody in the room now and uh, quite rougher than most of the people that maybe we know. Paul was a really rough guy. Paul was very devout. He really wanted to see God's truth 
but he went about it in a way that persecuted people that at that time were called the way and caused a lot of harm and a lot of heartache to a lot of people. Can you imagine the families torn apart by seeing a loved one murdered because they believed in this guy called Jesus? So that's who Paul is. So Paul was revolutionized on a little journey to Damascus near to us in this region by a big light that came down and changed his life forever. As we know now, he got saved. He trusted Christ as his Savior, and his life was never the same. And as a matter of fact, God used this guy that we would look at in a very negative sense to write a majority of what we know as the New Testament today. So that's pretty, pretty radical if you think about it. A lot of times we come to our faith and we think, you know, I have to be a better Christian. I have to be in church and do the right thing. I have to really be more holy like the apostles were holy. And I've got all these people on the stained glass of the windows that if I could only be like them. Now, the Bible paints a quite a different picture. The Bible talks about a guy who was really despicable in a lot of ways by our standards today, by our politically correct standards. And he paints a picture of this guy who really was devoid of truth, but then brought it in. So last week, we spent a lot of time talking about sin. We spent a lot of time talking about what sin is and how ugly it is. So last week, we really parked our vehicle in the realm of the dead. So the exciting thing is, and I encouraged you to come back this week, so those of you who did, bravo, this is wonderful. Today we're going to talk about being alive, which is really the great news of this whole thing. If you read Ephesians chapter 2 and you start in verse 1, you go all the way to verse 9 and then just continue on, you'll find that there's a dynamic principle of living a life that's alive and not a walking corpse. Uh, so today uh, I want to just begin by summing up what Paul did and if we were just to make a summary of Paul's teaching in the entire New Testament, as we said last week, sin doesn't dictate where you go when you die. Uh, I believe that's on the screen here. Yeah, sin doesn't dictate where you go when you die, meaning that's the, that's the part of uh, the truth that, that saves us. We, we all know that. It's the gospel. It's the good news. We believe in Jesus. We trust Christ as our Savior. Sin doesn't dictate where we go on our die. But additionally, it doesn't stop there. There's way more to the Christian life than just saying, hey, I've got my fire insurance policy, I'm ready to go. No, there's way more. It continues and says, sin doesn't have to dictate what you do while you live. So while you're living on this planet, you don't have to be miserable. You don't have to have sin as your master, as we talked about last week. As a matter of fact, we all said out loud last week, sin is not my master. And I encouraged you to go throughout the week and say that when you're tempted, because we all face temptations. We all are in that moment where we just feel like, man, the world is crashing in. I was born this way. My father was this way. My mother was this way. I'm genetically predisposed to being a sinner, so therefore I can't help it. Uh, I've got a lot of pressure at work. I've just got to do this one thing. And so therefore, sin is our master. I encouraged you last week, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ and you've accepted him into your life, if you've trusted him for salvation, you don't have to do that. You don't have to live as a victim to sin. You can be free just by the simple fact that Christ has asked you to be free and Christ has made you free. And so this week is really exciting as we continue on in the text. So what I want to do is I want to just read the text to you from last week and then just continue on and then we'll pick out some points that we can look at. So starting in Ephesians 2 chapter 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God, it's the exciting news, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. So as we look at this this week and we go back and we, we kind of analyze this a little bit, the whole thing starts with a huge, huge, huge punch. I don't know if that excites you when you read that, but man, that excites me. So just imagine God. Who is God? Let's talk about God for a minute. I don't know if you really think a lot about who God is, but who is God? So first of all, let's go all the way back to the beginning. God created the universe. Who in here has created the universe in the last week? Well, since we met last week, just to let you know, I believe that's seven days, right? Six days, seven days. So in that same time period, God created everything that we see. He created the animals. He created the common grace that we all enjoy all the time, like the beautiful sunrise. He created these lovely waters called the oceans that we look at all the time. He created the beautiful beaches. He created the beautiful grass. He created the rain. He created all that we see and do. And then he created you and me. God did that, not us. God did that in six days. And then he took a day of rest. Amazing, unbelievable. That's who God is. So God created this perfect creation that was perfect in every way. And God had communion with mankind. In other words, God hung out with Adam. He, he, had, a, he had a relationship with Adam. And we all crave relationships. It's interesting, in the West these days, we're trying so hard to learn about community. How do we have community? We have church seminars on how do we get together with others and have community? And I always wonder why they don't take some more lessons from the Middle East because people here know how to have community. But God lived in community with Adam, with Eve, and then sin happened and the whole world changed. And as we learned last week, sin was like a disease, a virus, a computer virus stuck into the world system and we've all been infected since that time period. So sin entered the world and what happened? Mankind became very evil. They began to do very despicable things. As a matter of fact, it got so bad just in chapter 6 of Genesis. Genesis is a large book, but we're, so we start in chapter 1, just to chapter 6, and suddenly God has to make a judgment on the entire world. So what did God do? He looked and saw that mankind was very wicked, uh, and God sent a great flood, he actually had a lot of patience, the scripture says, with mankind, but waited and waited and waited, and there was a great flood that destroyed the earth. However, God redeemed mankind because of his grace, because of his love, but God, God showed up. And what did God do? He provided a way for us to survive as a race. You know, if Noah and his family didn't get in an ark, we wouldn't be here today. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but we're around because God chose 
to redeem mankind. So the situation looked very grim, very disturbing, very bad. But God, God showed up. God changed things because he decided to redeem mankind. You know, it's interesting in 1 Peter 3.18, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patient waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. Eight persons. We're here today because God redeemed the world through eight people. And the story doesn't stop there. As a matter of fact, I could go on and on and on and spend hours telling you about the amazing grace of God. But God, but God, but God, where God showed up in history and redeemed people, redeemed the nation of Israel from Egypt. That's a basis of Judaism today. Jews today constantly remind themselves about how God showed up. They didn't deserve it. I believe if you look in the pages of Scripture, you'll find that there's not a basis whereby people earn this. And that's kind of the point today, that you don't don't find that people are doing so good that they get to the point where they earn to be saved. God saves them on the basis of his love. And that's what we'll see today. So we come all the way to the story of Jesus Christ. You guys all know the story of Jesus Christ. He lived on the earth. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He was tempted just as you and me. So Next time you're in that moment and you say, sin is not my master, just remember Jesus was there. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness in a very difficult way after a period of fasting. So try this, try to fast for 40 days and then try to face your temptations. And that'll be to the point where Jesus got tempted. But that's how Jesus came through temptation by using the words written in this book we call the Bible and by proclaiming that sin is not my master he, he was tempted and came through that in the same way that we have the ability to do, therefore setting an example for us on how to live a free life. Then Jesus was crucified for us, died, was buried, and rose again in three days, demonstrating that once again, humanity can be redeemed. We can all be redeemed. The ball's in our court today. We can be alive. We can be redeemed. To continue on from but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So Paul here begins a little bit of a comparison. Uh, Back in verse 3, he talks about the children of wrath. So I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but before you know Jesus as your Savior, before you trust Christ, and maybe there's someone here today that has never came to the point that you trust Christ as your Savior, This is not a fun thing to announce, but we are known in the scripture as enemies of God. As a matter of fact, Philippians 3.18 says, For many walk of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Romans 5.10, For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So think about it. We're enemies of God. We're walking corpses. We have no ability to do spiritual good. You know, a lot of times as Christians, I know in my country, in the USA, uh, we kind of have an expectation that non-Christians may act like Christians. And we get disappointed in our neighborhoods and our communities when they don't do the same things that we do, and they don't have the same values that we do. But 
the scripture kind of teaches us that they shouldn't be expected to because they don't know how to. When you're dead, you can't seek anything that's good. It's not clear. You're saying, yeah, this, this particular point is so clear in my mind. This moral point is something that's crystal clear. I can look at it and I can say, yeah, this is exactly what we're supposed to do. And the person that's dead is saying, yeah, I just don't see that. I really don't. And maybe you've been in a disagreement with someone before in your life and you say, man, they just, they do not get this. But that's exactly where people are that are lost that don't know Jesus. They have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. Now, I understand that our society has to be based on laws and I'm not talking about giving anyone a free pass today. But what I am saying is from a matter of perspective, if you're lost, you, you don't understand what good is. You don't have the ability to seek it because you're dead. That's the whole point of this passage that we're dead. Uh, the original language noun for what is translated here, love, uh, talking about in verse four here, means to seek the highest good in the one loved. So this is from a commentary. The original language noun for what is translated love means to seek the highest good and the one love. Since those dead in sin are spiritually dead towards God, they have nothing to commend them to God. This is why Paul describes this love as being great. I don't know if you can recall in your mind the story of Peter. Jesus is being put to death. Uh, he's in the, the court there in front of the judge, and things are looking very uh, dim for the followers of Christ, his 12 disciples. And Peter, at that same moment, after pledging his love to Christ so many times, denied him three times. And we all look at that and we think, man, I would never do that in this circumstance, which is exactly what Peter said, but then he denied him. But still, after his resurrection, Jesus came to Peter and told Peter, Peter, look, man, look, I've got great plans for you guys. I want to build this thing called the church, and I want you to be a part of the beginnings of it. That's what I would call great love. I would call it great love when somebody like Paul does so many despicable things that are unimaginable to us today, and God chooses him and uses him to write of the majority of the Bible that we read today and base our lives on. That's what I would call great love. So we're not just talking about ordinary love, like maybe sometimes we'll tell a friend, a coworker, even our spouse, I love you. That's incomparable to the love that God has for us, the great love. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. The scripture goes on to say, made us alive together with Christ. So not only God made those who believe in his death, burial, and resurrection alive, which is an incredible thing, God has made us alive through Christ. So, so what does it mean to be alive in Christ? Well, it's interesting because it's, it's actually quite simple. It means that we're alive and not dead. So that's what it means. It means that we're alive and not dead. So to unpack that a little bit, um, being alive means that we are not a slave to sin. So when you're lost, when you don't know Jesus, when you haven't trusted Christ, what happens is you are a slave to sin. So if you could just imagine maybe like one of those bulls that have a ring in their nose and the master can pull them, that's exactly how you are to sin. You cannot stop it. You don't know why, but you just can't stop doing that thing. You just can't stop doing that thing to your wife, to your kids, to your husband, to your coworkers. You just can't stop doing that thing. You can't get any freedom. 
you can't stop looking at that bad thing online. You can't stop going to that bad place. You just can't stop because sin has control of you and you can't get any freedom from it. That's what it means to either be dead or living like you're dead. And quite frankly, many of us today may have trusted Christ at some point in our life, but we're big fans of the dead club. And I don't know why that is, but we do it. We get the dead club bumper sticker, we get the dead club keychain, we've got the decal on our car, and we're excited about the dead club. And so we're all about the dead club, yet Christ has already redeemed us and set us free. Why in the world do we have to hang out with the dead club? There's no benefit to the dead club. As a matter of fact, sin always has a gotcha. Sin will always gotcha. It'll always get you at the last moment. When you least expect it, boom, there's the consequence. Now, of course, Christ died for us. He saved us. He gave us freedom from that. But there's still consequences of our sin. And to be saved from that is to be alive, to understand what it means to be alive. It's interesting that this word, in Christ, as we're talking about here, is actually mentioned 28 times in the first chapter of Ephesians. So as you can imagine, Paul's really driving this point home of what it means to be in Christ. So either, there's, there's really two options. You've got the world system over here, led by Satan. We read about that last week, the prince of the power of the air. Uh, he's calling the shots in the lives of the dead people. So we've got that over here. This is his program. So you can study about his program, you can learn his ways, you can hang out at those sin clubs, you can hang out and do that thing, and, and, and so you're taking your cues from that. Or you can hang out in the Jesus Club, and you can get the Jesus decal and bumper sticker and all that stuff, and you can follow what Christ has for you, and believe it or not, your life will be much happier. Because being in Christ means that Christ is seated in heaven and we're a part of what he's doing. So if you remember in the Old Testament, in order to get to God, you had to go to the temple. And there were priests who had to go through all sorts of things just to make these sacrifices, and only so many days per year. It was a pretty intense process if you've ever studied it. So what happened when Christ died on the cross is that that veil that separated the holy of holies with the ordinary people was ripped in two, and now... Brothers and sisters, if you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, we have direct access all the time. That's why we don't have to go to a special place to pray. We don't have to wash ourselves to pray as Jewish people did in the Old Testament. We are clean. God looks at us and he says, hey, they're in Christ. So we have that capability, we have that power, and that truth alone, if you get nothing else from what I've said for the last couple of weeks. If you get that we live in Christ as believers, that's, that's worth it all. That's a very strong statement. Um, going on, it says, by grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So uh, seated with him in heavenly places, man, that just, that can kind of get really theological sounding. What in the world does that mean? seated with him in heavenly places. I would think of an example as a passport. Um, so all of us have passports, and it's interesting because we come from a congregation here that has a variety of passports. And every passport represented in this room comes with different benefits, right? So some countries have social 
systems of care for their people. So you have the passport to that country, you get the privileges of that country. Some countries have the ability to travel to more places than others. It's interesting, I was looking at an article online, and some countries you can travel to more places in the world than other countries based simply on the passport. So we're all very familiar with this concept of a passport. So imagine this, you trust Jesus as your savior. You say, I am following you, Christ, I'm all in. Here's what he does. He takes that passport called the world out of your hands and he gives you a heavenly passport. And that's why a lot of times you notice that Christians will pray for things that seem to the world really strange. Hey, there was just a tsunami in the South Pacific. Let's rush over there. The rest of the world is thinking, what in the world is wrong with you? There might be another one. The Christians are saying, no, we want to go help all the people devastated by that tsunami. See what happens when you're in Christ, you have that heavenly passport, your priorities completely change. You become a new person. You stop thinking about things that were ordinary and worldly, and you start thinking about things that are heavenly and godly. That is because we have a new passport. We're seated in the heavenly places, and we are blessed from all of that. Uh, a great example of this also is found in John chapter 15. I know that you guys have all heard, I am the vine, you are the branches. So that's what abiding looks like. So Jesus says in John chapter 15 and talking to his disciples and also us, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, actually follow me, listen to what I have to say in your life, follow my cues, don't follow the world's cues, then what will happen is, I will ask my Father in heaven for just about anything that you want, and you'll get it. Now, I'm not advocating here that you need to go ask for that new Land Rover that you're looking for. What I am saying, though, is that spiritually, your life will be vastly different if you abide in Christ, because what will happen is your priorities will change. You won't be so interested in that Land Rover anymore or that new phone. You're going to be really more interested in seeing God's kingdom grow, and you're going to be wanting to see what happens when Grace is unleashed in this world in a powerful way. And that's what happens when you abide in Christ. Um, to move on, chapter 8, sorry, verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, faith, and that is not of your own doing. So if you haven't gotten the point yet, there's really nothing we have to offer when it comes to salvation. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but salvation is not a synergistic contract whereby we bring something to the table and God brings something to the table. So when I trusted Christ, I didn't come to Christ and go, hey, Christ, listen, uh, here's what I got for you. Um, I've been going to church at least like four or five times a year since I was you know, born. And, so, and I went to that big Christmas service back in the day. I don't know if you remember that, God, but I was there. There was all the animals in the sanctuary. I was there. I even wore a tie, God. So I'm in on this thing. Not only that, God, I have prayed a few times. And you know what? I even prayed with my relatives. So that's great. Oh, yeah, God, I forgot. I got that huge bonus that time, and I took a small portion of that and I actually gave it to poor people. God, hey, look, we're in this thing together. I tell you what, this is what I've done. Now, if you could just meet me halfway and do the rest, that would be great. That's how we think, but that's really not the way it works. Because this picture that's painted here is that we are absolutely dead. That means we don't have anything to offer. I don't know if you've gone to a graveyard recently, but the people there, although we love them all, 
uh, really don't have a lot to offer us other than maybe advice from what they gave us before they died, but they're dead. And spiritually, if we don't know Christ, we are dead. So therefore, it's by grace that we've been saved through faith and not of our own doing. It's not synergistic, it's monergistic. It's God, not a partnership. It's God doing the saving. It goes on to say it's the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one can boast. If it had anything to do with us, the first thing that we would do is boast. That's just how we are. I'm the same way. I do something good, I have to tell somebody about it inevitably. And you know, today with our smartphones, it's so easy, isn't it? Selfie, hey, check it out, I did this, take a selfie. We would boast, absolutely we would boast. If we had anything to do with our salvation, we would be taking a selfie at that moment and popping it on Instagram or all over the, the internet to everyone that could see because we would want to boast. That's how we are as humans, we like to boast. Last week we talked about the fact that in Romans 3.23, the scripture teaches that we are all sinners, right? So Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. I suggested an illustration. I saw a tennis ball around here earlier. Um, somebody's, Tamson's got a tennis ball. So if I were to take the tennis ball and have the most athletic person in the room stand up here with me, and we were like, right, we're gonna hit London with this tennis ball. You might throw the tennis ball a little bit further than me, but neither one of us would hit London. Of course, it's unreasonable. In the same way, it's unreasonable that we're going to hit the mark of God's holiness. God is holy, we're not. God is God. He created the universe in the time that it took us to be in church last week, so we're not holy. We're not. He is. So sin is missing the mark of holiness. The scripture goes on in Romans 6.23 to say that the wages of sin, what we earn for being sinners, is death. And so last week I suggested an illustration of getting our paycheck. I know that today it's electronic, but all of us get paid if we work for somebody. And when we get that money, that's our wage for doing what we were supposed to do. That's, that's our, our wage. And so I suggested that you earn sin, sorry, you earn death through sinning. So sinning is the work that you're doing. Earning death is what you're doing. That's what Romans 6.23 teaches. But the great news about all of this, and I suggested last week, is that in Romans 5.8, Christ died for us. It says, even while we were yet sinners, while we were living in sin, Christ died for us. So I'm going to suggest an illustration to you. Let's say, for example, you were in the hospital dying of cancer. God forbid this happened, but let's say you were in the hospital dying for cancer. I have good cells in my body currently, so I come to the, the hospital and I tell the doctor, hey, doctor, listen, um, I've got some good cells. I would like to exchange these cells with this person dying of cancer. They go to church with me. I love them a lot, and I want them to live. So the doctor somehow did this miraculous operation that I don't even think exists, actually, but it's a good illustration. So um, he takes all the good cells out of my body and transfers them to you, takes all the bad cells and transfers them to me. What would happen? Of course you would live, and I would die. That's exactly what Christ did. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It really is not dependent on what we did, how many times a day we pray. That matter. It really doesn't matter. While we were living in sin, Christ died for us, and it gets better. The best thing is, is that we can receive that and let it change our lives. So Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, as we've read, says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one should can boast. So I'm going to use this illustration to cap off of our illustration time here. 
I'm going to use this chair here. So everybody, when they came in today, sat down in a chair. Okay, you came in and you just plopped in the chair, and you probably were having a conversation about what happened last week, the restaurant that you ate at after church or whatever. You came in and you sat down in the chair. You didn't really think about the chair maybe being weak or strong. You just sat in the chair. So you sat in the chair and you put all of your trust in that chair, knowing that that chair would hold you. So you trusted the chair. So I would suggest to you that Ephesians 2, 8, 9 teaches that by faith we are saved. What does faith mean? Faith, faith really means in our modern vernacular trust. It's two sides of the same coin. Trust means to put your trust in something. So the same way you would put your trust in a chair, you would put your trust in Christ. You would say, look, God, I know my life is messed up. There's no, there's no secret here. I'm tired of living this messed up life. Here's what I want to do right now, God. I want to transfer my trust from myself to you. I want you to call the shots. I'm done calling the shots. Because every time I call the shots, my life just gets more messed up. Every time I call the shots, I go into this tailspin and I find myself with all these horrible consequences. My financial life gets messed up. My marriage gets messed up. My work life gets messed up. My, right now, I'm so angry at my boss, I could just spit nails. Is that a saying? I don't know if you can spit nails. But I'm just so angry right now. See, so that's what happens when you don't know Jesus. But you know Jesus, and suddenly everything changes. You're the same person. You're living in the same circumstance. However, what happens is Christ comes in your life, and you live in Christ. And how does that work? Is there some special prayer you have to say? No, it's really just trusting. That's really all it is. There's no special thing that you have to do. The Bible teaches, for by grace you're saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast about it. So I might be a little bit naive to think this, and I'm just going to throw this out there, and you guys can laugh at me, but um, why doesn't everyone want Christianity to be true? Have you ever thought about that? There's a lot of belief systems in the world. There's a lot of atheists in the world. Why would everyone not want Christianity to be true? Um, now, I know that maybe it's not my tradition. Maybe it's not your tradition. We represent a lot of different traditions here. And to be honest, uh, I know that a lot of us, pointing the fingers at myself, have really messed up this thing called Christianity. But I'm talking about in its purest form. I'm talking about going back in the first and second century when Christ was crucified, he rose again, and suddenly in the book of Acts, this amazing thing happens, and thousands of people are added to the church. Why wouldn't everyone want that to be true? It just, I, I, I ask that question to myself constantly. When people are confronted with the claims of Jesus, why wouldn't you want those claims to be true? Who wouldn't want freedom? Christianity has radically shaped Western culture. I don't know if you guys know this, but a lot of our laws, a lot of the ways that we do things have been shaped from this book that we call the Bible. Why wouldn't everyone want that story of redemption, of being saved to be true? Christianity is very attractive. What makes it so attractive is one word. And the one the word that we've been talking about today is grace. So if you look at the text that we've been reading today, I kind of shrunk it and tried to fit it all on one slide. You'll notice that three times this word grace appears. So what I'd like to do as we finish up this morning is just talk a little bit about this word grace. 
As I said before, if you don't catch anything else, catch being in Christ. But the vehicle by which we get to Christ is called grace. What is grace? Um, so grace is what we crave when we are confronted with our guilt. Grace is what we crave when we're confronted with our guilt. So I can recall a time when I was 16 years old back in the USA and I got my driver's license. And of course there was a curfew because I was driving dad and mom's car and so I had to be home at a certain time. And you guys may have been in a similar circumstance in a similar setting whereby you come home past the time that you're supposed to be home and you look your parents in the eyes and you know, oh, I've done it. I know I'm late, I know I'm guilty, and at that moment, that exact moment, all you can think about is, where is the grace, where's the love? That's all you can think about. But additionally, now in your life, there may have been a time where maybe you came home late and your spouse asked you, where have you been? Maybe uh, you were at work, and you're sitting in your office, and everything's going good, and suddenly your boss walks in and lays out this case of where you've just really messed up. And at that exact moment, all you can think about is, I really need some grace right now. Where is the grace that I need? But you know, there's a flip side to grace, and that is, grace is what we are hesitant to, to extend when we are confronted with the guilt of others. It's interesting that we crave guilt so much, however, when someone has wronged me, suddenly everything changes. Suddenly, I don't want to extend grace. I want justice to be done. I want that person to get what they deserve. I want that whatever to get exactly what they deserve. I don't want to extend grace. So there's a little bit of tension with grace. Someone said that grace is the unsettling solution for just about everything. Grace is the unsettling solution for just about everything. You can no more deserve grace than you can plan your own surprise party. You ever thought about that? You can no more deserve, can you plan your own surprise party? Can you really? I mean, is it a really a surprise then if you plan your own surprise party? So planning voids the surprise and deserving voids the grace. The moment you say, I'm owed it, it's not grace anymore, right? So that's what grace is. I would define grace very simply as something that we don't deserve or as very haughty theologians might say, unmerited favor something that you didn't merit, you didn't earn, you had absolutely zero to do with it. We can't recognize or receive grace for what it is until we're convinced we don't deserve it. It can only be experienced in context of a relationship. I don't know if you've ever thought about that point as well. You can't really experience grace outside the context of a relationship. You must be in a relationship for grace to work. We're in a relationship with God. God reaches down and extends us grace. You're also in a relationship with others. You can share that grace with others. We've been saved by grace, and as I said in the beginning of this time together, that's where we transferred from dead to life, but additionally, we can live like we're alive by recognizing that God saved us by grace and sharing that grace with others. Now, please, I understand, and I know that many are thinking here, wait a minute, you don't understand what they've done, there are laws, I get all that. I'm not trying to abolish all laws and say everybody needs to be freed from prison, but I am saying that there are people in your life that need some grace, and they need a chance to get extended that grace, that unmerited favor, just like you were given. Uh, a lot of times we lose sight of the fact that we were sinners. 
doesn't matter how good you think you are, we still cannot make that tennis ball reach London. Um, there must be a significant lopsided equation, and that's what makes Christianity so unique. So for grace to work, there has to be something lopsided, right? If you had a friend and both of you were kind of on the same level and you both did the same thing to each other, it's not really grace because it's not really lopsided. But think about this lopsided equation here. We're way down here. We can't get that tennis ball to reach London. God is way up here. God is holy. We're not. God created the universe since last week, time-wise. Since we were in church last week, God created the universe. We're down here. It's very lopsided. That's what it takes for grace to work. So this is what makes the story of Christianity so attractive. And this is why even if you can't intellectually believe Christianity, Christianity is attractive. So Christianity is very attractive, and maybe there are some in here today that intellectually are like saying, hey, look, i got a lot of questions. I just can't work this out. And you know what? That's great. You're on a journey. As long as you continue on in that journey, that's wonderful. So maybe we all are not on the same page as to what Christianity is, but I believe that we could all agree that if you don't deserve something and you get it anyway, that's pretty attractive. Uh, finally, I would say that grace is not fair. So when our kids were growing up, um, we have a fair in our city back in the U.S., and my wife would always say to our kids, the fair is not until July, because as you know, kids always say, that's not fair. Well, I have some news for you. Grace is not fair. Grace is really not fair. It's, it's not fair when you're journeying through life with someone, and man, they're just doing everything wrong, and you think, man, I just... That person, he hates Christianity, he hates everything, he's a horrible person. I wish the worst for that person. I don't want to extend grace. And God saves them and their life radically changes. That's what grace is. It's not fair. Instead of thinking about what grace uh, did for us through God, just for a minute, think about how much grace you were willing to extend to someone who has done something far less from you that's not fair at all. Think about Paul once again. We started with Paul in this talk. Think about Paul once again. Paul absolutely did not deserve his faith, let alone how Christ blessed his life. Think about it. Someone who persecuted and killed and stood by why Christians were killed and then being used to write a majority of the New Testament that theologians have studied for years and we all live our lives by. Think about that. That's pretty dramatic. That's grace. The longer you stay dead, however, the longer you will not know what it's like to live. So as we finish up this talk from the last few weeks, I just want to encourage you with something. The longer you stay dead, the longer you're not going to know what it's like to live. If you continue on in that same death spiral, as I like to call it, because it is a spiral downwards, death never goes up, it always goes down. Sin always goes down. That thing you're hanging on to that you think brings you so much pleasure, it's just going down. And eventually, there's going to be a consequence. There's going to be a gotcha moment where it just takes control of your throat and jerks you around and you have a miserable time. That's what sin does. It's not my definition. It's, it's what the Bible teaches. It's horrible, but that's what sin does. You can have freedom from that. You can live as though you know that you're alive. You don't have to live as though you're dead. Everyone's hoping for this to be true. Everyone's hoping for Christianity to be true. And Christianity is all embodied in one person, and that person is Jesus. And Jesus works through one word, and that word is grace. In this past two weeks, we've talked about this term. We've talked about this person. 
And I just want to encourage you today, if you've never met Jesus and you don't know who he is, if you go, you know what, now that I think about it, I've been coming to church for a long time. I do all the right stuff, but I just don't feel like I have any freedom. I feel like I'm like a slave to this thing, sin. I can't shake this habit. I can't shake hanging out with these people. I can't shake watching this wrong thing I'm not supposed to watch. I can't shake treating my family like that. Maybe it's time for you to trust Christ. Maybe it's time for you to examine your life and go, you're right, Jesus. You rose from the dead. You are God. I give my life to you right now. It's really all it is. You know, prayer doesn't save you. A lot of people are taught at these classes when they're young that there's this magical prayer that you say and suddenly you're saved. Prayer doesn't save you. Prayer is just a communication. So prayer is just you talking to God and telling him what's already going on in your mind. It's verbalizing it. And so to verbalize God, look, I know I'm a sinner. I know I don't deserve this grace. And I know that you died for me many years ago on that cross and you took all of my sins upon you. And I know that the third day you rose and you conquered death and you want me to live my life like I'm alive. You don't want me to live like a dead person. You don't want me to walk around like a corpse. You want me to live like I'm alive. Jesus, I accept that right now. I want you to come into my life. I trust you. I trust you. I'm not even thinking about it. I'm trusting you. If I read it in the Bible, it's true. I trust you. I'm not going to second guess you. I trust you. That's what salvation is. That's what Christ offers for us today. So I encourage you, if you haven't done that before, talk to someone after the service. I know that the elders will be at the front of uh, the auditorium here after the service. And I also encourage you, if you do know Jesus, Claim this truth for your life. Look more into grace. Find grace in your life. Extend grace to others. Let God's grace flow through you instead of stopping it up with all of this horrible sin and trying to live in the dead club. Brothers and sisters, if you've been saved by Jesus, you're not in the dead club. It's over. You don't live there anymore. You don't have that address. Your address has been changed on your CPR card and your passport to alive. You're out of the dead club, you're in the alive club. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for...